0: Hello, and welcome to the Hoop Collective podcast. We talk about the NBA, which we are doing on Thursday afternoon. If you listen to this podcast, you know that I rarely have guests outside our collective group at ESPN. I make exceptions. The last exception that we made was for Chris Paul. This exception today is for Mark Termini, who has been an agent in the NBA and done some NFL contracts uh, and endorsement deals, but is primarily been an agent in the NBA for, what, five decades? Parts of five decades? He'll correct me if I'm incorrect. He has negotiated over $2 billion in professional sports contracts. And he most recently in his professional career, although he was an agent for decades before the formation of Clutch Sports, but was the lead negotiator for Clutch Sports. When Rich Paul formed Clutch Sports, his primary partner right out of the gate was Mark Termini. He has not been with Clutch, I think, since 2019. He'll correct me, but I would want to introduce him. So from Cleveland, Ohio, where he is from and lives. Actually, I think it's outside Cleveland, Ohio. Don't want to say exactly where you are, Mr. Termini, but uh, generally the Cleveland, Ohio area. Welcome, Mr. Mark Termini.
1: Thank you, Brian. Appreciate the invitation. You did I say block? anything
0: incorrect? Do I need to no, correct the record everything there? Everything was good. Five
1: decades puts it in a proper context. But if it's five decades, how far back into the decades did we start communicating at least three of those?
0: Yes, for sure. You represented everybody from Ron Harper in the 80s to LeBron James to Anthony Davis to John Wall to Paul Gasol. Who else is notable that you've represented over the years? Jim Jackson, who we'll talk Jackson, about later.
1: The earlier days, you know, but starting with, with Ron and Brad Sellers, now the mayor of Warrensville Heights, lottery picks back in the 80s, and Costa Koufis uh, from Canton, Ohio. But I will always link to our book, which is the reason that you saw some interest in maybe visiting with me yes. and not to, uh, this is not a promotion for it. It's an organizational uh, outline. <laughs> But I remember getting a call from one of our mutual friends. He says, "You know, there's this kid in Akron and I think he's going to be good. I'd like you to talk to him." Okay, I got to talk to this junior G-man writer and <laughs> you know, see what he has to say. And here we are, 3 decades later, a media conglomerate. Yes, collective. But as uh and I'm going to introduce my personal attorney, Alexis Anderson, sitting in to monitor the communications. I always travel with my personal attorney now. You know, I have two: Wendy Cohn, who's a senior partner, and my young associate monitoring everything. But as she will tell you in the book, success has a thousand fathers, and failure is an orphan. So, due to your success, Brian, I'm taking some credit for it because that day that I talked to you. <laughs> about some That's arcane right. thing in the collective bargaining agreement when you introduced yourself, you've done a heck of a job with your career. So congratulations to you. But I will take a tiny bit of that credit.
0: And rightly so. So Mark Termini has a book, uh, Words to Negotiate by. Now, let me just say that I am thrilled that Mark Termini wrote a book because this gentleman, and he will be he may not agree with all this, but he is one of the most intriguing fascinating people in the nba that the average fan doesn't know about i'm thrilled that he agreed to come on today we're going to talk a lot about the league and contracts and players and stuff like that and this book has is a collection of mottos sayings adages pearls of wisdom with his comments on many of them and the one that i think is my is my favorite in the whole book there's many that are not attributed to you. There's, you. You quote everybody from Shrek characters to Estee Lauder to all kinds of different people in the NBA to famous philosophers and logicians, Sicilian, Sicilian Proverbs, which is some of your favorites. But the thing that, that is in this book that is my favorite page and is the page that I think personifies Mark Termini and the $2 billion of contracts that he negotiated in our many conversations over the years, is this right here, which is, quote, the NBA cares, but not that much, which is the NBA cares is their charity arm. He's not talking about charity. But Mark, I'd like you to explain your philosophy about why you say the NBA cares, but not that much.
1: Well, because my career, Brian, as you know, was it's been behind the scenes the way I want it to be, and I purposely kept it there for a number of reasons, business-oriented and others. But the NBA is the best, most successful, most powerful sports marketing organization in the world. They deserve all the credit for that. But my job and my duty was to my clients to maximize their situations as players, to protect them from the business challenges that would come about in, in this very tough business of being a professional athlete, And I learned over the years, not only as kind of a characterization, but as a protective mechanism to realize that players and agents that come into the league and think that the perception of any sports organization, professional sports organization, from the NCAA, which is a professional sports organization, to the NBA, to the NFL, they're in business to maximize their profits and to put on their production. And if you don't realize that early on, you're going to learn a very harsh lesson. So I just try to explain to the clients and the people that I advise that you cannot be naive to what this is as a business that could be through trade injury situation. I just explained and all the, I'm going to categorize, we'll talk about more items of propaganda. The league is extremely skilled at messaging at their verbiage. And the fact that NBA cares might be a great program for, rehabbing houses or courts in the city, when it comes to your business as a player, protect yourself and have somebody that's going to know how to protect you.
0: For sure. So you, you know, I I don't want to spend too much time talking about the 80s and 90s, but some things happened in the 90s with you and your clients that affect business today. And I think several different things have happened in your career. I think there's four of them that you, I think, highlight where you were involved in situations that changed the way NBA business operates. I wondered if we could go through them a little bit and just to illustrate the push and pull that happens every, every single year, if not every single day, between the NBA players and the NBA sort of hierarchy. And the first one being the Jim Jackson contract holdout of, what was that, 1994? I
1: think. 92.
0: So Jim Jackson is the, what pick in the draft of the fourth. Dallas Mavericks? Fourth. Fourth. And at the time, there is Jack no is rookie.
1: Jack yeah. is first. Morning is second. Leightner's is third. Jimmy's fourth. So you can see it's still burnt into my <laughs> psyche. Right. Okay. And I believe LaFonso Ellis was fifth, but I didn't want to acknowledge the fifth pick because Jimmy was in the group of four. And Jimmy's done, everybody knows who Jim Jackson is. He's doing... Uh, he's had success on your path the same way with broadcasting and all he's doing NBA TV. So he's should be known by a lot of people that follow the NBA, but the key thing point that you're getting to is there's no rookie scale. That's the key difference. 92. Now the young men that rejoice tearfully on draft day, think that the rookie scale is awesome. They have not lived with anything else, but uh, in those days, you got what you could negotiate out of the box as a a rookie, six-year deal, 10-year deal, four-year deal, three-year deal. So that's what brought the issues to bear on that situation. So let me know what else you strike. Well,
0: so so he didn't sign a contract, couldn't agree to terms, and the word holdout is a delicate term with agents, I know, because he wasn't under contract, so he wasn't holding out, but he did not sign at the start of the season. And he did not sign in November, December, January, February. And I just wonder if, I could ta- if you could take us through what that process was like and um, what ended up happening in, in the end of it.
1: Well, it was a process that starts much like it does today. Everybody was highly joyous on draft day. It was a high pick. The draft was in Portland. They had the green room, much of the same fanfare, but of course, no social media. Um, but it was a big event, especially when you have Shaquille O'Neal as your number one pick. The USA Basketball was preparing, I think it was a pre-Olympic preparation. So there, everybody in the league and the world of basketball was focused on that draft. And the problem that we immediately encountered was we were in the transition from the 70s and 80s and the league being very shaky, and salaries being in a two, three, four hundred thousand dollar range, maybe. And now players were starting to get in a multi million dollar range, and rookies, because of no restraints, were aspiring to get salaries that were equal to all star players, multi million dollar per year contracts. And without getting into another book level explanation. The Dallas Mavericks were very much an old school franchise. Every time that they drafted a player, that player became the line of demarcation in the salaries. That's how contracts were negotiated. If you were an agent, you could never let a player drafted behind your player get more money. If you did, the Sharks would be on you and say, you did a substandard job. So there was intense pressure on the agents to continually set Raise the bar and do a contract that would help get you more clients and also be reflective of your that particular client's value. So this was it was really a time, a crossroads time in the NBA where they did not want to pay players a million, two million, much less three million dollars as draft picks before they had even scored a point in the NBA, as everybody continually reminded me at the time. So when Alonzo signed, I'm sorry, when Shaq signed and Alonzo signed and Leitner signed uh, five to six year deals at start between three and four million because of that pressure and that concern and that goal that I took for granted and I took it on willingly. Jimmy Jackson needed to be grouped with that top three group of players. Unfortunately, the owners of the Mavericks, the owner and the management wanted Jimmy to be grouped with the lower level players that did not get those years and guaranteed money. And that became the crux of the dispute, the dilemma, the impasse, which then resulted in him not signing until the following March after a lot of drama, back and forth, stories, communications over uh, speaker phones from Dallas. You know, there's no fax machines. We subscribed to all the papers around the country. There was no internet to see what was going on. And then there were some other legal aspects of it behind the scenes. And Jimmy ended up getting paid for the whole year in a contract that fell in with the top four. And someone that's an iconic writer by the name of Carrie uh, Eggers in Portland said, you know, Termini can say, it's a player's league now, you know, we you can hold out and I'll get you what you want. He won. He certainly did. So the league did not like that because it was a precedent. And just as you've seen tying it to the modern era, there's been some focus on the players that uh, uh, were thought that they would refuse to report and force a trade. There's some of that going on strategically. Well, this is a direct connection to that. The owners were afraid that if a guy like Jim Jackson and an agent like Mark Termini, even though the odds of that happening even then were, were zero, it was that fear of that precedent being repeated. And two years later, in 1995, they started the Rookie Scale which was because the year after Jimmy, Glenn Big Dog Robinson, the father of the modern day Glenn Robinson, was rumored to want $100 million. He was the number one pick. And that sent shivers up the NBA owner's spine that this business could be turned upside down if these rookies were able to command or force their way into those kind of contracts. The next collective bargaining agreement resulted in a rookie scale that in some form or fashion, we still have today. More Hoop Collective podcast after this.
0: Yeah, so imagine if Scoot Henderson drafted with the number 3 pick didn't, you know, wasn't happy with the offer that the Blazers had and just didn't sign until March and then got paid for all the games that he didn't sign for, which is what happened with Jim Jackson and it led to it was one of the factors in the first lockout. Am I correct? In 1999 uh, was the rookie scale, or did that come in before? 95. Before? Was 95. Yeah. 99 was the max uh, contracts. Is that right? But and this is, and the reason this is interesting to me is that our listeners may recall when you were representing Tristan Thompson with the Cavs, and I know you don't want to necessarily get into the details of the modern stuff here, but Tristan Thompson did not sign a contract when he was a restricted free agent until um, November
1: Maybe Paul was right before training camp. I think he,
0: okay.
1: he might have missed a little bit of training camp if I recall, but it was late. Okay. You know, was- I
0: was just telling people. You know, his agent once stood firm until March and got every dime. So if you think that that he's gonna be intimidated by not having a contract at the start of the season, you're incorrect. And also you represented J.R. Smith. J.R. Smith had his contract stalemate and Eric Bledsoe had a contract stalemate. Those didn't last into the regular season, right? But they were no, s- the similar, the similar style of, you know, loggerheads, the more in the and more in the modern era.
1: Loggerheads, arm wrestling, whatever you want to call it. It was just me trying to find a way as a prospector for leverage and as somebody that was experienced to say, you know, there's more ways to approach this debate about compensation than just to look elsewhere and see what another team could offer. And if there was no So called market elsewhere, come back to the team hat in hand and say, I guess I'll have to take whatever you're offering. That was totally against my foundation and my psychology, my policy, and what I felt my duty was to my client. And what I was trying to prove to them why they were going to owe me a big fee is because I was going to produce that value and not cave into the team because there was, quote, no place else to go. And marketplace constantly gets thrown up as, well, if there's no market for him, well, it's not really a market. It's an artificial market. It's not an open market. So the fact that there's no place for Tristan to go or Jr. to go or Eric to go or Jimmy, for that matter, and, and this thread connects all the way back to 92, my retort to that was, well, there's no place for you to go either. So if you can find another starting power forward or another potential all-star point guard or another fourth pick in the draft. That's how I turned it on the teams. And history is there now in the, in the annals, they had no place else to go. And so they paid a little more money. They've made out. Okay. Which is another point that I think I saw at the time and I'm not Nostradamus, but I've got a pretty good track record at predicting things because I study the league. I, pay attention to institutional memory. I have a little bit of experience. I talk to people that are more knowledgeable than me. And in 92, the economics of the league were on the rise in 2016. The economics of the league were spiking with LeBron, with the one-on-one, one, you know, people said, wow, what, what a smart financial decision, you know, Termini architected on Clutch's behalf and, LeBron's behalf is like, look, I, I'm not the beautiful mind over here. All right. I'm a guy that went to Case Western Reserve and took no math classes. Is that right? <laughs> I, I'm from Holy Name High School, Brian. I would never tell you anything that's not 100% <laughs> honest. Now, you don't know anything about Case Reserve. You don't want to talk about the 90s or 80s. So I, does that mean the 70s are out too?
0: No, no absolutely it's, not. not. No, we it
1: won't dwell there for your producers and yourself and your listeners. Thank goodness. I'm not that guy that's going to go back. but. It was a school full of nerds, chemical engineers, mechanical engineers, engineers, you know, pocket protectors. It's hard to get through there with no math at all. I was there, play basketball, if you can as misguided as I was on a small level. And that was as far as it went. And that's how I spent my time. So my point is the judging the marketplace, whether it's for LeBron, Tristan in the middle, Eric. Back to Jimmy Jackson and Ron Harper and Rod Strickland holdouts, which we'll tie in in a quick second. I just saw that the, it was just math. I, you know, I use my calculator and you talk to people that know that the cap's going up. So why would I want to tie up my player? There's a risk factor. There's a little educated risk and leverage uh. A, evaluating leverage properly and talking to the clients and educating them and saying, look, on balance, I think this is a risk worth taking because it's going to pay off this way. So I was able to construct something that got LeBron $20 million for signing his name three times instead of once. I I don't feel too bad about that. And that's how, (laughs) whether it was LeBron or Eric, that was always the pride I took. Like, look, You're going to pay a fee, but I'm going to create value for you. If I don't create that value, then you can whack me and we can have a discussion. But that's really what motivated me in all those deals up through 2019, like you said, when we concluded the $1.4 billion for those players over those eight years.
0: So, okay, so let me go just go over a few things we just said. So what happened, one of the big lessons that Mark has taught me as a journalist is what he just described a minute ago which was, and I think fans see this the same way too. Um, you know, there's a restricted free agent out there right now, PJ Washington from the Hornets, who doesn't have a contract. He's sitting out there in restricted free agency. This is a situation you had multiple times in, in, your, uh, in your career. and uh, We just talked about Tristan and Eric Bledsoe. And the idea was you don't have another offer to, for, to you know, you don't for, forget about an offer sheet. You don't have another offer. And so, why should we pay you more than what we're offering? Why should we increase our offer? And what Mark just said there and what he educated me on was our leverage is that you can't replace that player. And that maybe doesn't necessarily feel good in July, but it is true. And in the end, Tristan Thompson got 80 million, Eric Bledsoe got 70 million. And while this isn't a negotiation amongst agent and player, it's not unlike what's happening with Dame Willard right now in that Dame and the basically Portland, is, you know, you know, Miami is saying this is what our offer is. And Portland is saying that offer is not good enough. And Miami is like, OK, we'll go trade him somewhere else. Well, at some point, Miami is going to realize probably that they can't trade for another player like Dame Willard. Maybe they can, but you know, I suspect that's somewhat of Portland's strategy right now, as an example. And so that's one of the things that words to negotiate by, those are actions to negotiate by that Mark was a big part of pulling off. And then you just mentioned the LeBron contracts. I have to say, so just take us back to 2014. The letter comes out that LeBron is coming back to Cleveland. It is an incredibly well written letter. The league is absolutely shocked. Uh, LeBron's going back to Cleveland. Things are changing. The Cavs are trading for Kevin Love. And then the next day, the contract, or maybe it was that day. I don't know when the time was, but the next day or whatever, the contract gets negotiated and it's a one-year contract. And it's a one-year contract because as Mark just explained, he knew that the salary cap was going to go up highly with the new CBA. I'm sorry, with the new television deal. Mm -hmm. And he didn't want LeBron in a contract that was three or four years long that didn't reflect the max salary. So, so number one, you had to sell LeBron on taking a one-year deal, Mark, and you had to sell the Cavs. I mean, the Cavs were not in position to negotiate really in this one, you had them, but no, you also had to sell Cavs. LeBron on it too.
1: I told the Cavs that's, that's in the book, you know, and this is a, a, a factor of experience and age and all those things. I and mean, that's why I came up with the axiom. You know, I'm a tell agent. I'm not an ask agent. And that's very, very, very outside the scope of most sports agents, just in general, because it's tough. Now, I could talk a lot tougher based on the level of player that I'm representing. You are who you represent. However, there are not not every sports agent maximizes leverage that their player affords them. And I don't want to talk too much on the LeBron side because that's a unique situation. I, you know, I never really considered myself LeBron's agent. I was a mechanic. I was brought in to do a, a task. The task, task was to negotiate the contracts. And those relationships were tremendous. All those clients were excellent, smart men. And my style is to educate the clients because I'm the more experienced person. And that's my area. And that's what they're paying me for. And I found that when you take the time with any of those players, they may be relative levels of experience. They'll grasp what the strategy is. And if there's a certain amount of trust and respect, it's amazing the things you can accomplish. So we did that with all those players through those years. I did that with the players starting in the 80s. But as to LeBron, look, no team, and this is no it is nothing negative towards the Cavs. They don't want their number one asset having that kind of freedom on a year to year basis, they still don't. So it had to be imposed upon them. And it was. And one of the points that I was very adamant about is making the point that LeBron had never had a max contract until I was in charge of negotiating his contracts. And if I had a nickel for every time somebody would say, before I represented LeBron, before I was doing his contracts, and it's still to this day about top players, people will say, anybody could represent, insert name, Michael Jordan, Juan Banyaya, LeBron James. And my response to that was like, really? Then why has he never gotten a max contract until I did his contract? So it must not be so automatic. So I took pride in that. And the other part was more global. And I felt like if my name is on it, he has to get what he should get, not because of Mark Termini, because who he is. And if LeBron James doesn't get a match contract, there's not going to be any more max contracts. Because if you know how teams work, they're going to come in, they're going to tell the next agent, hey, LeBron doesn't have a match contract. And they tried that with us in 2014. People say, well, I'm sure they just came. And just offered you whatever you wanted. No, if I told you the video of this or showed you the video of this people that came to downtown Cleveland and they started out, well, you know, we have this much cap room. Not just
0: the Cavs, all the teams that came and met with the team.
1: All the teams, multiple teams. A couple of them said right away, like whatever you want, but a couple of them are very experienced guys, very competitive guys, and they're coming from a history where LeBron did not have a mass contract. So that's another point I try to make. These guys don't just give you something. You know, I'm always sensitive to when media members say, you know, the Celtics gave Jalen Brown. As it was. Why is it they gave it to him? They, they didn't just give it to him. And certainly not with me. You know, I forced them to do that. But it's always the team is on the high ground. Where they That's just right.
0: To give it <laughs> that's to right.
1: Them. Well, they might have given it to me at the point of a gun. And you can say, call it all you want, but they didn't want to. So teams came in and said, you know, we can give him whatever it was, you know, $10 million under the max, $5 million. And I'm, I went to Holy Name High School. They had the nuns. And the nuns had a ruler. And when the nuns saw, thought you were misbehaving, they said, put your hands out there, Mr. Termini. And then they would whack it with your fingers. So when these guys came in, I said, like, put your hands out there, okay? And I don't know what I grabbed. There's a couple guys that they had to take a little Catholic school uh, pain. and said, it's going to be the max. Okay. And then they quickly got to the max and stopped that discussion. And the word got out. And, but I had to make that point because he had never had that before. And the same thing, one of the points I make in the book is that the, these threads, some of them are old school and they, people say, well, we want to hear about the eighties, '90s." I get it. But if you're smart, You will hear about those things and you'll listen to them because those are merely issues and business principles that applied then and they still apply. doesn't mean you shoot the two-handed set shot. I'm not that guy. But I'm saying those traits, those characteristics, those business issues, you can see them still manifesting themselves today. You may not have the tools of holdouts the same way. You have a rookie scale now, but the psychology of representing the player with skill, with strength, finding leverage, evaluating it properly, being willing to use it, not evaluating or thinking you have more leverage than you do, but also not uh, acting as if you don't have the leverage that you do have. Those are all principles that were applied by me in the 80s. And I see guys using them wisely now, the top agents, and I see other agents or, or team members not using them properly. And that's kind of what formulated a lot of what's in the book.
0: Yeah. I mean, one of the things you, one of your quotes in here is that patience is the super tactic. We were just describing the holdout process, the, the impasse process. I remember when you were representing Damon Jones and, you know, Damon Jones is not a a transformational player, but at the time he was an important player. And I remember that contract negotiation went three months and uh, and that's the thing. I know one of the things that happens today is almost all NBA business, probably 90 some percent of NBA business uh, gets done by July 3rd, maybe 2nd, 2nd or 3rd in the offseason. You have a, you know, your words to negotiate by talks about patience, but you pedal you, you operate in patience. You know, when LeBron came to Cleveland in 2014, as you're discussing nine days, eight or nine days before that decision ended up getting made. I mean, that's something that isn't, a part of today's operation in today's NBA that, you know, definitely is a part of the way you negotiated for decades.
1: Correct. And I think that's an unappreciated and uh, sorely unused strategy that's there for agents and players, but the mentality and the psychology of the business now is, you know, the players want to see their name on your network scroll on July 1st or July 2nd. By July 3rd, they're, they can't take it. And I've marveled at some of the players who actually go on, on the record and talk about how stressful it is for them to go through negotiations or free agency. And they admit that it's very stressful and they want to get their deals done quickly. And they'll come out before the negotiations start and say, I'm looking to, you know, want to stay here. And I hope they get the deal done quickly. And of course, I want to send them a copy of my book along with the forthcoming books about negotiating and say, you know, you're you're saying all the wrong things, son. Okay. And whoever's advising you should advise you appropriately because if I'm the team and I know that you're nervous, why am I going to give you the best deal on July 1st when I can save a few here and a few there? And I think we've seen not I think, I mean to put it in perspective, and this gets a little technical, but in the $2 billion of contracts that I've personally done, I've done one non-guaranteed year. <laughs> now, the way the business has evolved, and that was a point of, you know, if you took a non-guaranteed year, it was like the team was getting over on you. It's like, look, that's paper. I don't want an option year. I'm not taking it. Well, we won't cite specific examples, but let's just say there's no longer that sensitivity. And NBA contracts are being reported in the media now. The way football contracts used to be. And football contracts are being reported the way NBA contracts should be and, and took 30 years to be recognized as fully guaranteed versus NFL contracts that are not. It's really an amazing analysis. But from an Asian standpoint, and I am a money guy, I don't apologize for it. I try to negotiate the most money for my clients. I want to make the most money for myself. My job, those non-guaranteed deals are are paper. And tying, again, the thread to some of the comments I've made, NBA cares but not that much. I know that a non-guaranteed contract, if the player's injured, and we've had some recently, you'll see how much paper that is. And you try to take that option year after you're injured, or you're waived to the bank and say, yeah, but Brian Windhorst on ESPN reported it as X amount of dollars three years ago, well, you know what response you'll get from the bank when you show them that headline. So I live that, and I said I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna allow that. I'm gonna fight as hard as I can to protect my player. You know, whether you refer to as a sheepdog in the, in the book, I don't. My players are big, strong, tough guys. My clients and the, and the current players are all that way, or they wouldn't be at this level. But the sheepdog reference is not a literal one. It's a figurative one because they still need to be protected from somebody telling them on a team, hey, you know, we'll we'll just tack on two non-guaranteed years. And you can tell all your friends that look at the ESPN headline that you signed for 150 million when it's really only uh, 40, whatever. I wouldn't allow that. And some players don't understand that maybe there's more there that they can get. Some players get it. Some don't. I always took pride that the player was going to get the contract to the max ability that I had. And if that took a little stress and strife or a little arm wrestling, then they would have to deal with it. But I usually I always explained to them. And if they weren't with it, then we probably weren't right for each other. And I could kind of gauge that early on. So not every player was for me. Um, it wasn't a, a uh, a flavor for everybody because i had a certain personality and tactic that i brought to the table but the ones that stuck with it i think would say now they lived And some you know and they look back and they laugh that's the easiest money i ever made <laughs> i'm not getting paid till november or advance in july anyway so why am i going to sign on july 1st when i can get x amount more Th- that's
0: a key point yeah uh the basic contract and I-, I don't know if you'll discuss this but you negotiated the contract that ben simmons is currently on Ben Simmons contract, you know he was facing getting fines because he didn't report to camp. With the whole thing with Philadelphia, his contract got fifty percent or something on July first or whatever. You negotiated that.
1: Yeah, so, twenty five on July first, twenty five on, but fifty percent on October first. So that was the max that you're allowed to do under the rules. Fifty percent before the season. That was the the um, strategy and and maxing out their cash flow and their the receipt of their their salary.
0: Yeah. And so that ended up, that was a negotiating point. Like who knows how, I don't, you don't have to go into all this, but like that negotiating point ended up being pretty important. Not something that anybody could have foreseen, but you know, I think, you know, you once told me about a player where you got all the way to the end of a contract, a long-term deal. And one of the sticking points was you wanted to make sure that, that if there was a, if the player passed away, that the contract would be paid out. And that was a sticking point. And fortunately a player didn't pass away and is still alive. And, very successful in his end of the business, but all these things matter. Like that's your job is to fight for these things. And in the case of Ben Simmons, him getting that money up front was a big factor in the way he was able to handle that, that, uh, that situation in Philadelphia. Well, so, I mean,
1: I think that, I'm uh, you know, there was an article written in the New York times about how contracts that I negotiated and the support that, uh, all the players gave me to, to structure that resulted in these all you can get deals, which are really just the max payment schedule coming as fast as it could to the players. And I had to educate the players that there's a thing called present value, the time value of money, and the higher the interest rates go, the more valuable it is to have that money in your pocket faster. And the league knows this. The league has, through collective bargaining, you know, made the contract payments longer. And made it tougher to get the money faster. And if you look at it from the league standpoint and how shrewd they are, they're not just worried about one player. They're looking at 15 players on 30 teams times 30 years. And when you keep that amount of money in your pocket for six months faster over those years, that's a considerable amount of money that they're earning on whether you want to call it the float or investment income or whatever. And I've tried to educate the players. I have educated them that, look, again, justification for the fee that I'm charging. Here's a way that people say, well, there's nothing to negotiate on the rookie deals, but I'm trying to find every which way I can. So you can take that money, you can invest it yourself. And I feel pretty good about generating some income that would not have been realized by the player without my skill. And here's, this is really inside baseball, but your listeners are more, attuned inside baseball stuff than most is why a lot of players don't get that is the agent can't bill anything further. So if you bill, if you're making $10 million a year, the agent, whatever his fee is, is X amount of that 10 million. If you get the fastest payment schedule, I couldn't bill the players 5% or four and a half percent on extra value. So a lot of agents will take, well, why am I bleeding over this the way Termini would? Because I can't, bill anything. I'm just going to close it out quick. He'll get a little more uh, money later and uh, let Termini fight for that. But that's the pride I took because that's just my nature. And I'm justifying the fee to say whether it's a hundred dollars more or when the interest rates are 5% or you can invest your money as one player told me at 12% and make that kind of return. I feel pretty good that I've my skills and my will and, and us working together as a team, all of us, is producing that extra money for you that otherwise wouldn't exist. More Hoop Collective Podcast after this.
0: Let me talk about one other instance that happened. Uh, It was also with Jim Jackson, I believe it was in 2005. Boy, where was he? He got traded to New Orleans. He got traded to New Orleans. And basically, and this is relevant today because this is what It's debatable whether Damian Lillard uh, and his agent actually threatened this or whether it was implied, but Jim Jackson did not want to play for New Orleans um, Hornets. They were at the time and he, they were a rebuilding team and he wanted to play for a playoff team. And so Jim Jackson basically through you didn't report to New Orleans and ultimately never reported and you basically said he doesn't want to believe he doesn't want to be there and and he he ended up being retraded to the phoenix suns and they ended up going on a playoff run had joe johnson not fallen on his face in that terrible thing and broken a bone in his face maybe they would have won the title that year but that's another as you would say another book that process led to the nba putting in some rules about reporting but uh, uh and is the basis of why they sort of threatened dame lillard and his agent uh, recently. But that process as well, where you sort of challenged the league and ended up in another stalemate there.
1: Well, I was trying to exploit whatever tools that we use, and uh, use the tools and exploit any gaps in the rules that were already very much of a restraint on the players. And and, and in negotiations, I mean, I have – Said it in anger and half in jest to some of my general manager friends that would say, "Well, we we can't do the payment schedule. We can't do death protection. We can't do this." We I said, "Guys, you already have everything. Okay, you've only left me with these meager ways to create value for my client. So you can fight for them all you want, but really, all I'm doing is getting what's left. You've got a rookie scale. You've got a mid-level exception. You've got a max contract. You've got the terms are down from ten years." Or unlimited to four years or five years so I made that point but to your point about Jim Jackson yes I mean he was a veteran player he didn't want to go and be a mentor to younger players on a terrible team but to to save that part of his career and make it meaningful and to put him in a position to maybe get another contract you couldn't just ask they had to be forced and they were not happy and I forget the owner's name he's out of the league now I mean it was the same. I couldn't believe it. I said, "Of all the guys, Jim's got to go through this again." But he's a very principled and strong man, and he enjoyed. Once he got to Phoenix, uh, he enjoyed it. And but getting there was the trick. And whether it's the current players like Damian, I'm a players guy, always one hundred percent, and therefore I'm an agents guy. And the league will be okay. Um, Yes, he's got a contract. You know, I always have to laugh a little bit people are like you know you have to live by a contracts really well has ever did anybody renegotiate contracts during covid didn't re- renegotiate office leases did you think the landlord ever came to the tenant and said you know uh my business is crumbling i've got to renegotiate my contract so contracts are renegotiated every day that's part of business but when it comes to a player people want to take the moral high road and act like a player agent that wants to push the Limits or sign a contract and then want to be traded uh, is doing something that's outside the allowable tactics or is immoral. And that, but that's just a communications issue and a propaganda issue. So that's how I looked at it, and that's how I imposed it and tried to get the results that would benefit the player.
0: Yeah, was he he was in Houston? I just looked it up. I forgot he was in Houston. Got traded to New Orleans. Thank you. Didn't want to go and ended up in Phoenix. And there was weeks that passed, right? Wasn't there? It was like
1: weeks at least, if not multiple months. It was another one of these situations. And it was, you know, an arm wrestling match, but something that I was comfortable with. I didn't, I didn't, you know, enjoy it. I didn't want to do it just as a frivolous tactic. It's very stressful and puts a player in a tough position. But if that's the only option, I was going to do it. And last, tied back to the the old days, but the relevance of those tactics today and why I say in the book about people don't recognize institutional memory. One of the things that disappointed me to no end, and I was a little less experienced and not naive, but I gave people more benefit of the doubt than they should get. I had already had holdouts with Ron Harper in Cleveland and one that was regionally famous with Rod Strickland, who to this day is still... I think the most fascinating point guard player to watch. And I've watched 80,000 NBA games in a lifetime of watching basketball. He was just unbelievable as a player. So he held out in San Antonio with Larry Brown as the head coach. I think coach Popovich was an assistant uh, and the owner was ex car dealer by car dealer by name of Red McCombs. And Bob Bass was the old school general manager. And people didn't pay attention to this because there's no direct TV. Wendy and I would have to go on a big satellite dish, find a sports bar and watch the game in the dead of night and sit there, have our salad and hope that the Spurs would lose. Because the Spurs won. We knew we weren't going to get a call for another week. But if the Spurs lost, if you know anything about Larry Brown, he's he's pretty competitive and (laughs) they would they would uh, feel we got to get our point guard. And it took until December. And one day in December, I got a phone call. And this is Mark his assistant. It's Mr. McCombs on the line. Yes, Mr. McCombs. was very respectful in those days. I still try to be, but I was much younger. And Mr. McCombs was not the billionaire that he, owner of the Minnesota Vikings that he ended up being, just had this team in San Antonio. And after them trying to break us down and do every single thing for Rod to fire me, for Peter Vesey to eviscerate me for the first of four times in USA Today, and nobody liked to hold out. It was Rod and me and his family, and Red McCombs finally enters the equation and says, Mark, I got my Christmas tree downstairs, and I was going down the stairs, and I want to see a point guard under my Christmas tree tomorrow, and I'd like (laughs) you to bring your point guard here so we can get our point guard back. My my imitations of Red McCombs sound like they're all the same, Donald Carter, Red McCombs. But the point was, until he got to the point where they lost enough games and the tension was so high that David Robinson, Sean Elliott, Rod Strickland, I mean, they were a good team. They needed that point guard. So we got on a plane, hopped down there. Rod signed a one-year deal. The rest of the year was unrestricted at the end of that, and that's when the next year he hopped off to Portland, signed – What I got one line from Peter that says, Rod Strickland signed a megaton deal in Portland. You know, it's like, Peter, he just spent like 10,000 words killing (laughs) me. But when he finally gets the big deal, I get one throwaway line because we won. And so the point I'm making is the Rod Strickland holdout, which was massive, the Jimmy, uh, the Ron Harper holdouts. We come to Dallas. I expect that they have some institutional memory and they're going to say what you said. 30 years later, when you, Tristan Thompson, you did your homework, you were aware of me. You said, Look, this particular person is not going to be phased if you think he's going to cave or whatever. Here's his track record. I thought that they had looked that up or were aware of it. But yet, we started from scratch with Dallas. And to my dismay, they did not acknowledge that I've already been through this, guys. Do you think that I'm this the third time? or it might've been the fourth There might've been another one in the middle there that didn't get a lot of attention, but you get my point. They didn't do their homework. And then at the end of it, what does Donald Carter say? Well, I wish I would've got to know Mark a little bit better. Like Donald, it's March. <laughs> you look up, you know, you had the whole, you had nine months to get to know me after they brought us, they brought Jimmy chocolate chip cookies, which is, a, there's a lot of messaging there. You know when the owner brings the young player from Toledo, chocolate chip cookies after the draft. They they you they wanted to go a certain way, so from July, August, September, October, November, December, yikes! Can't believe we did that. January, February, March. Then Donald at the press <laughs> conference. I wish I would have got to know Mark better. Then I would have like <laughs> believed him. But by then it was March, and then Jimmy was the most popular Maverick. By the end of the season, which is another thing I've always tried to do with all the players and a good, that's what a good agent does. He insulates the player from that stress, stress and strife and negativism. And I worked very hard so that when that was over, the players, whoever they were, came in and they were treated properly. The fans liked them. Might have taken a quick second. But all those guys were good players and they were that those holdouts were never held against them. And they went on to their respective uh, successful careers.
0: From the book, Never Impose a Timetable on Yourself, Mark Termini, which again, I think is relevant. Today, talk about institutional knowledge. We have multiple standoffs in the NBA today. Most of them are team to team, but there are some player standoffs. There's some guys who have not signed extensions and stuff like that. One of the tricks that teams use and I don't want to make it sound like it's sinister, but one of the things that teams do is, and actually it's funny because I think Daryl Morey, president of the uh, 76ers, he he was good at this. Um, he and he and maybe I, I have the it wrong, but I remember he in, in my mind invented the December 15th trade deadline, which was if you want to trade for a player and then reaggregate him, by the by the real trade deadline you got to trade for him by December 15. A brand new deadline was was created. I remember when there was a, the, the draft night trade some draft night trades. Uh, I won't even say which one, but there was a draft night trade uh, or it was like the a draft trade and the team said we have to have the draft the trade done for this player may have been represented by clutch by 48 hours before the draft because if we don't have it we can't we got to be able to prepare for our draft picks you know, it's a, it's a thing that teams do or anybody does in a negotiation to force action is to create a timeline, to it's create a, tap- a deadline. Yeah. And you're basically, and, and what you're describing in that and what I just pointed out is
1: don't do that. Don't do that. Well, I, you, you identified some good ones. And, and again, I don't assign morality to anything that positively or negatively to money tactics, good faith, bad faith, you, you know, it's a game. And I've had guys tell me, Mark, Stop playing games, or I'm not gonna play games. It's like really well. Guess what? Life is a game, negotiations are a game. If you don't, I put that in the book too. If you don't want to play and somebody else wants to play, you're gonna lose. Yeah, I'm playing a game and you're using your tactic. I'm not mad at you, but I it's my job to recognize your tactic, to counter it, and to come up with my own tactics. If I told you. The owners are great. You know, we've got this deadline, whether it's a marketing deadline. I've heard religious holidays deadline. I've heard wedding deadlines. I've heard investment deadlines. And it's easy, especially if the agent and the player, and this is a very subliminal psychological uh, trait that you guys will recognize as you you see it, but maybe you've never really thought about it, where the agent and the player view themselves somewhat as inferior to the owner. The owner's a billionaire. These are very intimidating guys. The team is a very powerful institution. As one player told me that I highly respected him, but he was questioning a tactic. He goes, you know, the man always wins. I'm like, well, not always. Not if somebody is skilled enough to exploit the needs or the weaknesses that the man has. I never accepted that. And I never went to the table with that. So that's where I came up with the axiom. I see too many people say, well, I've got to get this done by a certain day, whether it's because July uh, 3rd, all my friends are going to ask me, why is my name not on a scroll at ESPN? And I have to educate that client, say, who cares? Why are you imposing an artificial free agency doesn't end until November, hypothetically? So why are are you imposing an artificial deadline? I have to get my contract done by the third. I have to get my contract done. I'm going on my honeymoon. I have to get my, I've heard all of these. And you have to have enough stature and experience to tell the player like, look, I don't care about your honeymoon or your cruise or your holiday or whatever it is. When the deal is done Properly, and it's ready to sign, that's when we'll be done. And you're going to be a lot happier for it, young man, because you're going to look back and laugh and say, Wow, how, why would I sacrifice my position for this artificial deadline that I imposed on myself? And people do it all the time in business. They'll just say, Well, I'll get back to you with an answer by Wednesday. And I ask them, well, Why are you imposing that deadline on yourself? Why don't you just wait? Because you don't know what's going to happen on Tuesday. Something else might come into the equation that you can use. So that's where that comes from. It's a, and why it applies to many different areas across the decades of negotiations, but also outside of NBA negotiations.
0: Well, I really, um, if you have interest in, it sounds like Mark's going to write more books. It's what it sounds like to me. I don't know. I don't want to put you on the spot here, but if you're interested in some of the stuff that he talked about today, you know, a lot of times I, in my job, I talk to people all day long. It drives people in my life crazy because I'm always on the phone. But it's very important to have a well-rounded understanding of the NBA. Uh, I try my best. You're never always going to get there. You're always working on it. Conversations with Mark Termini like we've just had here today have helped frame the way I look at the NBA. There are other people that believe exactly the opposite of a lot of things that he just said. They happen to work for teams sometimes. But his perspective is very valuable and has been, and some and a lot of his perspective is in this uh, book, "Words to Negotiate By," which you can get on Amazon and other places. But Amazon is the place where I would go. And I appreciate you talking about it. And edu- it, so- sometimes you say things that I've heard you say for decades, and it makes me smile. And I'm so glad some people got to hear it today. So thank you, Mr. Termini. For doing this, thank you for writing this book. And I am very much looking forward to more books that I hope to see from you where you get you really get into the nitty gritty because this is, um, this is just a primer of the Mark Termini experience.
1: I have more covers, as you <laughs> tease me, I'm a guy with a lot of covers, only one book, so maybe we'll fill them up. But as a fellow author, yes, a book is hard, Brian. I don't know if that's dawned on you yet. It's hard, so I don't know if I'll get to the other books, but I appreciate your. Always listening and asking great questions. I hope this was uh, interesting to your listeners at some
0: level. WTNB, words to negotiate by. I'm gonna, I'm just going to keep it here next to me in my podcast studio for when I have to use it for gentlemen who I have and women, but mostly two certain gentlemen that I have on this podcast. Thank you, Jackson and Bruce, our producers. Thank you, Listen to Collective Podcast. We will be talking to you next week.